you did not receive an email from me this week, that means that I don't have you coded in. So uh, sign up in the back, and I'll make sure you get on. I send an email out every week through the class about something that we're learning or talking about or whatever. So make sure you're on there, and if you get the email and you decide that you don't like it, don't mark it as spam. Just go down and unsubscribe or click on the button that says uh, update your preferences, and you can pick whatever you want to get from our church. Okay, that's your choice when you do that, so make sure. All the handouts for tonight are back there, and uh, there should be two new maps. So uh, make sure you have that. And then we have uh, handouts from last week. I don't know where they went. They were right there. So, okay. You'll need those because we're going to be referring to them throughout the class. So let's, um, let's pray and get started. Father, we are grateful and so very grateful for your forgiveness. We're so grateful, Lord, for the work that you did on our behalf, knowing full well that there's not a thing we could do about it. But you decided to do it for us. Thank you for loving us and for saving us. And thank you for just a short night of reflection and um, our sinfulness. And um, it reveals your righteousness and your love for us, that you would take us in, Lord, and still love us and forgive us in spite of what we've done. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, the, um, <coughs> the schedule of finding Christ in the Old Testament has been updated so you can see what books we're going to cover. And these books are uh, in the order that you will find them on the overhead, the uh, timeline. Okay, so we're going to look this week and next week at the Pentateuch, the first five books. And then we're going to look at the books written uh, in between the Exodus and the Wanderings and the Monarchy. And then we're going to go to the United Monarchy, and uh, we'll spend two weeks on that. And then the Divided Monarchy, when the nation split, two weeks on that. And then what we call Exilic Prophets. Those are the prophets that wrote to Israel during the exile of 50 years. And then the Post-Exilic Prophets, we'll finish with that. Those are the prophets that came after Israel returned to the land. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. So we went over the timeline last week. We're not going to do it this week. What I'd like to do this week is, um, uh, right now actually, is start with the introduction to the Pentateuch. So you have that there. These are just some notes that I put together for you. Every week I'll try to give you notes on the books that we're studying. We just have one page on each one as we work our way through it. Now, there's no way we can cover 39 books in nine weeks. It's not going to happen. Um, not in any detail. So we're going to look at them, and some of them we'll treat as a group, like the post-exilic prophets at the end. They brought a message very different than the prophets brought uh, before God exiled Israel. The prophets before, a lot of warnings and rebukes. Prophets afterwards, a lot of hope. And so we'll treat some of those as a group, okay? The larger books, like the Pentateuch, we're going to take specific pieces out of that that carry the theology of the book uh, to give you a sense of what God was doing in the book. So here's an introduction to the Pentateuch itself. Now, you may re remember from last week, those of you that weren't here, that the Genesis 1 through 11 covers, um, I don't know where it went. Same thing we had happen last time, Jason. Where'd that go? I don't know. It was up there a minute ago. 
of the way with trouble last week. Huh. Well, you can look on your handouts. <laughs> okay? And uh, what you'll see is that the way I described it on the first page, it, I have it described as covering eight, 9,000 years. I'm not trying to argue for the age of the earth at 9,000 years. That's not what I'm trying to do. I have no, uh, no fight in that battle, how old the earth is, because I don't think the Bible has a stake in that battle. As far as I'm concerned, earth could be a billion years old, and I'm okay with that. All right? I simply don't know. Um, I do not see Genesis 1 as dealing scientifically with, the, uh, with what happened to the earth. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. So all I did was capture here around 9,000 is the earliest we can, we've gone back as far as archaeology goes, as, as far as human artifacts, things like that. And so that's as far back as we went. So I don't hold to, I get asked that question all the time, do I believe in the young earth, old earth, middle earth? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm not a scientist, I'm a theologian. And um, you know, I suppose if I was a scientist, I might have an opinion, and I don't. I have to trust science as a dialogue partner to tell me how old it is. Um, I do believe God created the earth out of nothing, but not because of Genesis. I don't think Genesis teaches that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word create does not mean, doesn't have to mean that he created out of nothing. For example, he says he created the man. He didn't create the man out of nothing. He created the man out of the dust, the earth of the ground. So the word itself does not require what we call creation, ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. I believe God created the earth and the universe out of nothing because of Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we believe God created the universe out of nothing. <laughs> so it's pretty straightforward in Hebrews 11.3. But I don't think Genesis argue, is arguing that. And honestly, I don't think the ancient people were asking those questions. Science wasn't, ha- they didn't know anything about it. Weren't even asking those kinds of questions. God's addressing something very different. So don't take this slide as me arguing for a particular age of the earth. All I did was give you as far back as we can currently see due to archaeology. And uh, every year we go back further and further as we find things that dig a little deeper and dig a little deeper and dig a little deeper. The earth could be very old for all I know. But what's most important as a theologian is that all of this time period up until um, the flood and then the birth of Abraham is all covered by 11 chapters of Genesis. Okay, 11 chapters. So let's say a word about the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, Genesis is the first canonical book. In other words, it's the first book that appears in our Bible that we use right now. But it's actually part of a much larger book. Okay, Genesis is not a book. It's a chapter in a book. A book called the Pentateuch or the Torah. Uh, Most uh, Jewish people and, this, and most scholars think of it as the Torah, which means the law. That's all it means. So Genesis through Deuteronomy is uh, one big book. Right? The term Pentateuch is formed from Greek language, and it ba- has the basic meaning of five scrolls. Theologians are very creative. So, it includes all five books. It is one literary composition. It is divided into five parts because an ancient scroll could not contain more than one-fifth. They were limited by size. So uh, the scroll, and so they, they did it that way. So this is all one long story. The main story is found in Exodus through Deuteronomy. They tell the uninterrupted story of what happened to Israel. 
the story begins, now if you go to the, this next slide, you'll see that I have the pen tree going all the way to around 1500. Okay, now that's the period that it covers creation of the universe up to around roughly 1450 to 1500. It was all written around 1450, I believe, but it covers the period before that. So it covers all the ancient stuff. It co covers the story of Abraham. It covers all the way through down into Egypt, into the Exodus and the wanderings and all the things that happened. Um, it begins, the story proper begins with the birth of Moses in Exodus 1 and 2 and ends with the death of Moses in Deuteronomy 34. And so it's just one long story. And we divide it into books. And most of you, if you've read some of the Old Testament, you're more comfortable with chapters 1 and 2, Deuteronomy and Exodus, uh, I mean, sorry, Genesis and Exodus, than you are chapters 3 and 4. Am I right? Leviticus and Numbers? Yeah, and then you get back a little bit more comfortable when you get to Deuteronomy. And I hopefully uh, next week I'll change some of that so you'll, you won't, can't wait to go home and read Numbers because then the night's over with. <laughs> the story focuses on the Exodus, which is the salvation event in the Old Testament par excellence. It is the story that makes sense of all of God's redemptive work. It is the story that explains both God's character and his action, which is later fulfilled in Christ. So if Christ is going to redeem us in the immaterial parts of our soul, uh, our being, that's hard to understand. And so we have a very graphic picture of how much God cares about us, and it reveals a lot about his character, and that's the Exodus. So the Exodus story is referred back to over and over and over again. <clears throat> We're not going to be in the um, New Testament hardly at all, this, this class, but uh, if we were to look, for instance, in the Gospels, when Jesus is at the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, they're having a conversation. It doesn't say this in your English, and I don't know why we w don't word it this way, but in Greek it's very clear. They're having a uh, conversation about his exodus. He's leading us out of sin. And that's the word that's used in Greek is exodus, referring back to this major, major event in world history. Nothing is like it. The story begins with the, uh, brings the Israelites, I should say, freed from Egyptian slavery and brought into relationship with this one true God, who we know now know his name as Yahweh, through the plains of Moab and poised to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy stops with the death of Moses. They haven't gone into the promised land yet. That's picked up in the next section. Genesis is like a prequel to the main story, okay, of the Pentateuch, chapter 1. It gives a background of the events that lead up to the Exodus. Genesis 1 to 11, where we're on the first slide, it describes the, the uh, decline of humanity into the darkest, deepest recesses of sin, what we now call total depravity. There's no way to overstate how significant that was. You are not even a little bit good. There is nothing, nothing inside of you to commend you to God. Absolutely nothing. Every, every part of the Bible argues that. Another way to say it is that there's no part of you that escapes sin. Every part of you has been affected by sin. And all we have to do is look around us. I don't usually have to convince most people that uh, sin is a problem. The world is broken. We're broken. On the very best of days, we always capture a glimpse of what could be. 
Our marriages, at the best of times, give us a taste, don't they? But it doesn't take very long to try to let off that sinner back into, you know, who is this person that I married? If all the women got their lives in order and fixed, it would be a great world. Um, but they haven't. <laughs> so we taste it. We see justice being done, but yet we're very aware that we're nowhere near, nowhere near truly just. Right? On the best days, our justice system is weak. We probably have arguably the best justice system in the world. And on the best days, it still fails us. So those are what scholars call glimpses or echoes in the soul. We, they, it echoes that, that things hopefully will be better one day. If this is all there is, wow, what a disappointment. So we all naturally live with the expectation that something better is coming. And that's the story of Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 12 to 50, the next section, um, Genesis 12 to 50 introduces God's solution, and it comes in the form of a covenant. God decides on his own initiative, based on his own love, to reach down and do something about it. It's his choice. We have no say in it, other than to obey it. That's our choice. Exodus through Deuteronomy documents the story of redemption. And every one of the books contributes a different part of the redemptive story. So we're going to look at that. The main story is that what we call salvation history. That's what scholars call it. In other words, by calling, by calling it salvation history, we are affirming that in the story of Israel, as captured in the Old Testament, God was acting for salvation in a way not found anywhere else in the world, anywhere else in all of creation. He did something with Israel that was unique. The Old Testament, as affirmed by the Pente- in the Pentateuch, provides the basis uh, for understanding, the foundation for understanding the story of Jesus. We talked about that briefly last week. We're going to get to Jesus and stop. We're done. But you can't understand uh, the story of Jesus. You really can't truly understand it without understanding the Old Testament story. It's just not possible. Um, well, I'll go on. I'll say that later. The uniqueness of Jesus' life and story is built on the uniqueness of the story captured in the Pentateuch. No other great book, no other religion has a book that describes what we're about to unfold. This is too amazing to capture. It's just amazing. No, no other great book does it at all. And one of the things that we talked about last week is that the Old Testament and the New Testament combined are written over a period of about 1,600 years but they cover a lot more ground than 1,600 years. They go back far back into the uh, ancient part of our, our creation, the creation. And so you don't have to adopt the values of any part of the Bible because the story of the Bible is the story of God redeeming broken cultural values one step at a time. So what was acceptable in one period is no longer acceptable in the next period, so forth and so on. By the time we get to Paul, um, we have slavery. Slavery is acceptable. It's not acceptable today, is it? No, we believe it's wrong. But the Bible, the New Testament, doesn't include it as slavery. You know, slavery is wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. It doesn't do that. It says, you know, in your slavery, here's how you should act. So it's interesting because uh, on our elder retreat, as you know, we are discussing the theology of gender, which will hopefully within another month we'll make a copy of that available for you. The elders are reviewing it now. But I told the elders, this is my own personal opinion. This does not reflect the elders. I'm not going to try to convince any of the elders that Paul taught male leadership. 
I'm not going to try to do it. I don't believe he did, but I'm not going to try to convince anybody of that. He also taught slavery. He taught women couldn't wear gold jewelry. He taught that the males should raise their hands and worship. And there's a long list of things he taught that we have decided, based on good analysis and scholarship, that they are no longer relevant today for some reason or another. So the question to me is not whether Paul taught male leadership. The question is, is it still relevant today and why? Which is why we develop a theology of truth to help answer that question. All right. A universal goal. This captures the Pentateuch. This is laid right out there. This is one of those overarching narratives that we begin to see. A universal goal. The Pentateuch, and then we'll see in the rest of the Old Testament, intends us to see Israel's history not as an end in itself. That's one of the places Israel failed. They weren't blessed and chosen for their own benefit. They were chosen for the sake of the rest of the nations, the rest of the world. Think of it this way. God created a kaleidoscope of nations, and he chose one to reach the rest. That is the unique goal of Old Testament theology, overarching theme. And it gets very pronounced and clear in the Pentateuch. The Old Testament brings Israel to center stage through the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. But only after an extensive and dramatic introduction to the dilemma of humanity, sin. So once the Bible unfolds what the real problem is, then he begins to address it. Genesis 1 through 11 portrays all the nations as sharing in this dilemma. All the nations share equally in this whole, this whole problem. Therefore, the story of Israel is actually God's answer to the international problem that all nations share. So God didn't select Israel for Israel's own benefit. He selected Israel to reach the rest of the world. That becomes a model in the New Testament of what the church is about. He didn't bless us for our benefit. He blessed us so that we could bless others. That's what we're about. Another question, another day for talking about church. Okay, second thing is that it's a unique experience. This is another overarching theme that we see in the Pentateuch. God's action in and through Israel was unique. No other nation in the world, in the history of the world, experienced what Israel did when it comes to the grace and power of God. This story is unique. You won't find it anywhere else in any other written literature. The story of the Bible, election, redemption, God making his covenant and then giving this, uh, the promised land or an inheritance was a story shared by no other people. Now, while God was very active in all the other nations, only in Israel did God work within the terms of the covenant of redemption. He made the covenant with Israel. The other nations didn't share in that. Their job was to go out and bring people in, to attract people to this one true God. That's what was supposed to happen. What happened in Israel was unparalleled in all of time and space. Listen to these words out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Some of you have heard me actually make draw attention to it. Uh, read this from the pulpit. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? <laughs> I just love those words. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself 
one nation out of another nation by testing, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deed like the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? Has any of your God ever done this? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. That's his basic message. From heaven, from the heavens, he made you hear his voice. He disciplined you. On earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his works from out of the fire. Why? Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt, that's the reason he did it, by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. This is a unique, a unique story. It's not found anywhere else in the world, any other literature. So the revelation of God's character, or the uh, character of God and the nature of his redeeming work to humanity is linked together, inextricably bound up with Israel's history. He tied himself to Israel so that he could reach the rest of humanity, so that they would see. It's the same mission we have today. We want the world to notice us, not because we're good, not because we're better, but because we are the words of life. That's why. We want people that are lost and tired and weary, broken, hurting. They may look good on the outside, but they're really not. They're searching like crazy, trying to satisfy these inner needs, and they can't. We want them to look at us and say, you're different. You're different. Why? In high school, I started dating a girl. She was a Christian. I dated her for three years. And uh, spent a lot of time with her family. Wonderful family. Went on vacations with them. And I'm a little stubborn, hard-headed. And it took me three years to, to get to the point that I was ready to become a Christian. I'm a critic. I'm a cynic by nature. May surprise you, but down and deep inside I am. That made me a great auditor when I was an auditor. I'm skeptical. I don't take anybody's word for it. I just don't. That's why I have an office full of books. Somebody makes a statement, and I go get several other people to see if they can validate or invalidate. I don't take people's word for it. I just don't. I'm a critic by nature. And uh, so it took me three years. But what finally drew me in was I knew her family, and I knew my family. And her family was different. And I wanted to know why. So, one day, I was in the Navy, and she, her parents told me she was coming home from college. And so I came up, some of you heard this story. So I came home from college, I picked up the phone to call her. I said, hey, Mom, Dad said you were home. Well, we've been talking about getting married. And I said, I, uh, uh, I have something I want to talk to you about. I flew, I flew home from, I mean, I drove home from the Navy base to ask her, how did you become a Christian? How was your other? I have something I want to talk to you about. She said, I have something I want to talk to you about, too. I said, well, you go first. And she broke up with me. (laughs) It's one of the great ironies of my life. Because she said, it's obvious that you're not interested in Christ. And I really want to marry somebody who's going to be a full-time minister. What do you want to talk about? She said, it's not important. Hung up the phone, drove four hours back to the Navy base, cried the whole way. 
I didn't know what to do. And you think that, I, I mean, I was pretty broken up about that, but uh, what I was m- just as broken up about was I didn't have the answer to my question. So a week later, I called her dad, and I said, this is why I came down here to ask her how to become a Christian. I don't know the answer to that question. He thought that was so funny. He said, can you come back? So I drove back. She's going back to college, and he led me to Christ. And um, so fast forward to the story. She married a guy who uh, uh, became a pastor, and about eight years into his ministry, decided that that really wasn't for him, left and went and got an accounting degree, went into the business world. I got out of the Navy, went and got an accounting degree, two of them actually, and then about eight years into that, decided it wasn't for me and went into ministry, <laughs> got other things in mind. I've often wondered what happened if I'd reversed the questioning, you know. But she was the one who, in her family, did this very thing right here. God had done something unique in her life and family that wasn't present in my life. And that lured me to her family to say, you're different, why? That's what we want the world to see. We want them to see who we really are. Yes, we are sinful, and that's okay. Yes, we are broken too, and that's okay but we have something unique that they don't have. That's what went through, and that's exactly what the story is, a unique experience. So God (coughs) bound up in Israel's history. Israel's uniqueness is tied to God's uniqueness. In other words, God did things for and in Israel that he did not do with any of the nations, and not for their personal benefit. You've heard me say many times, God has blessed many of you, not for your benefit, so you can be a blessing to others. God has comforted you in sorrow so that you can be a comfort to others, Paul argues. That's, that's the standard, standard core element of what Christianity is about, that God is alive and active in our lives so that we become his vehicle for reflecting his character. To There's no other way he does it. You've heard me say there's no flashing lights. No billboard out there. There's no plane with a banner flying behind it. I'm God. It doesn't work that way. He did that in the Old Testament just to show that it didn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. We are, his, we are the way he reflects his glory, our lives, right here. The uniqueness of Israel's historical experience was because of its special <coughs> role and function in the world. In other words, to facilitate God's promise of being a blessing to the nations. What we call the Missio Dei or the mission of God. Our church is organized around the mission of God. That's my heartbeat. I had long discussions with the elders before they hired me. You need to know what you're doing. Uh, My heart beats around the mission of God. I'm not going to devote my time. I I don't mean this in any way arrogantly. I'm not going to devote my time to a church that's not interested in that. So as the elders were interviewing me, I was interviewing them. I was interviewing at every church at the same time I was interviewing here, here. And it became clear to me that in the other interviews, that really wasn't an interest for them. So I walked away. But the more I talked, the more the elders got interested. And the more they got interested in the transition team, the more I got interested. Because that is what our responsibility is, is to bring Christ to a world that is so hurting and lonely and tired and weary. All right, a unique Messiah. It would make sense that if God is unique and he works with Israel in a unique way, that the Messiah is going to be unique. So it's important to remember, this is about the closest we're going to get to the New Testament, that the New Testament presents Jesus as the Messiah, as the Messiah who was Israel. Now, this is not meant to be a joke, but it starts out like it sounds like one. 
How many Jews does it take to fulfill the promise of God to reach the nations? Just one. Jesus was a Jew who did what God asked of the Jews. That's Paul's argument. And then Paul says, in case, in case that's not enough, he said, I too am a Jew. I'm proof as well. Peter said, I'm a Jew. That's proof. So God did it. He just did it with a little tiny group, one of which happened to be the Messiah of the universe, who was Jesus. So the Messiah was Israel representatively as well as personified. We can look to Jesus and we get to see what it means to be his chosen people. We can also look to Jesus and see what it means to be a, a true human. That's where we find the definition of true humanity is in the character and life of Jesus. So you want to know what it means to, to uh, be a true human? Look at Jesus. Don't quite ask the question, what would Jesus do? That's the wrong question because he sacrificed animals, right? The question, the better question is who is he? Not what would he do? Unless you can separate out the, the trappings from the Mosaic law from his life and glory and see how he loves people. He was the completion of all that Israel was put in the world for. He represents uh, uh, that completely. Okay, any thoughts on that? Just those opening words on Pentateuch? Thoughts, questions, comments? Okay, let's jump into Genesis. Stop me at any time. Um, you have one page, which gives you an introduction to Genesis. Okay. Um, Genesis begins the study of the covenant. It's a book of beginnings. It describes God's creation of the world, those he placed in the world to care for it. It records the first human rebellion against God and how God responded by choosing Abraham and his offspring. So let's go right to the beginning. Genesis 1. We're going to look at several stories in Genesis. All right. The very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So you have this picture. You have the picture of the Spirit just hovering. That word hovering is used every time, and it's always in a maternal type of sense. A mother hen gathers her chicks. It's that same imagery right there. So you have the Holy Spirit right off the bat caring for this new creation. Now, it's not surprising that it starts out chaotic. All the ancient creation stories start out with the same picture of chaos. But the ancient myths, the ancient creation myths, every ancient nation had one. Well, Israel wasn't alone with that. Every nation had one. Their stories were, were pretty similar. Uh, whoever they saw their gods as gendered gods. And whoever the you had male and female gods, male gods were obviously shining the female gods. And so at some point or another, you have a male god who's in charge of all the gods. The most powerful god is the one who's in charge. And, and you have a young god that grows up and says, I want to be in charge and challenges the older god. So this is the basic storyline of almost all the nations. And so they would get in a fight, in a tussle. Okay, And, uh, and in that fight, out of that uh, would come it's a complex way that they did it, but out of that would come the creation, what we know today. And so, and really, when we think of creation, we think of 
nothing and then something, right? That's not how they thought of it. They thought of creation as chaos and order. So we have nothing and then we have something. They have chaos and they have order. And so as the two gods fought, that represents part of the chaos. The winning god restored order to what was existing. They never asked the question, did it ever not exist? That wasn't part of it. That came along thousands of years later, right? quite honestly. And so their whole question of creation, all the incarnations, was the gods are there to preserve what's already existing. Keep, it, keep everything just running. Let's just keep it running. And so when the gods fight, that's not good for us. Right? And so creation was about restoring order and creating purpose with an already existing set of materials, if you will. So you look at the Egyptian view, for instance, of creation. Their view of creation occurred every 24 hours because the sun god Ra would rise and during their day, everything's peaceful. Trees are growing. Look at the plants and the flowers and all that kind of stuff. Birds flying around. And at nighttime, it'd go into the netherworld, the underworld, and chaos would ensue in parts of the creation that we can't see. And then the next day, sun god Ra would rise again and restore order. So creation occurred every 24 hours in the Egyptian creation myth. And so a lot of that came with Israel. They brought that baggage with them in their identity. For example, they never had a navy. They were afraid of the water. They were afraid of the chaos underneath it. Okay? That's why you have all that imagery from beginning to end of light and darkness. Darkness is where evil resides. Light is where good resides. That's all started way back with the Egyptians. And so God's very first thing he does, now remember, this book is written in, let me go forward again, around 1450 to 1500. So, all the Pentateuch is written right about here. Guess where they are? They're in the desert. They're in the third month out of Egypt, early part of the Exodus, and they have not met God. They, they heard about the plagues. They saw his power demonstrated. But they don't know much about this God that they followed out. So uh, they demonstrated faith. They put blood on the doorpost of Passover. Next thing you know is they're at the base of Mount Sinai two and a half months later. God's defeated the Egyptian army. So they've seen his power demonstrated in amazing ways. And then God said in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, I'm going to introduce myself to them. And so he scared them to death. We'll get to that story. But what he also did was Moses went up on the mountain and got all these books. This big, long book with five chapters. He got it from God. Okay, that's the basic storyline that we hold to as evangelical Christians. And so where does he start? He starts in the beginning. Let me tell you the truth about creation. Everything you've heard is a lie. So let's go back to the very beginning. Let's lay it out. No, there weren't. there's no other God to fight with me. Why did I make it? I made it for you. That's why. We are the crowning moment of, cre- of creation. Not the animals, not the earth, not the stars. Everything in all of creation was created for our benefit for two reasons. One is to enjoy and to work. We need something to do. God is the God who likes to work, and he made us to like to work. And we all like to work. We just don't like to work in the church, right? We love to accomplish things. That's what retirement and hobbies and all those fun things are. We like to get things done. 
And so he gave us a project to work on. That's what he gave us. Second reason is to reveal something about himself to us. He wanted us to learn about him. And if you stare at creation long enough, you'll begin to see things you haven't seen before. Many times over the years, I have, I've taken young guys who were wrestling with their faith and just gone out on a mountainside and laid down and stared at the stars just for hours, two hours, and just stared at the stars. And I just asked them over and over again, what do you see? What do you see? What do you see? Let God reveal his own character to you. That's what he does, his own glory. So he gave us this creation for two reasons. One is something to do so we would enjoy it, and we could fun and work, we could do all that. And the second thing is to reveal something to us about his glory. So that's the beginning. That's how it started. Don't buy any of these myths about the war between two male gods. It doesn't work that way. I'm the only God. There is no other. All right. And you heard me say on Sunday, he seventh rested on the seventh day. The ancients saw this language, and we have plenty of evidence to show this in the Bible as well as outside. They saw this as the building of a temple, a cosmic temple. Their belief was the gods inhabited a cosmic temple of which the earthly temple was a picture, a portal, if you will. That's how they viewed it. And so this is, the Psalms talks about all, uses all this language. The earth is God's footstool, for example. His, his, his chambers is in the upper, what they officially refer to as the third heaven. It's in the upper heaven, not in our dimension. So they saw this as the building of this great cosmic temple. And like anybody that builds a temple, when the king is done building a temple or a palace, what does he do? Does he quit? No. Then he gets to work. Okay, now we're ready to run everything. So on the seventh day, God rested. What that means is he completed his project. You probably heard me talk about that on Sunday. Completed his project. Now he got to do the business of running the universe. That's how he perceived it. You have the story of Adam and Eve. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in there. Um, you have the story of the fall. Let me see if there's anything I want to highlight in there. Okay, in chapter 1, you will notice that um, very rarely, I don't think you do it anywhere, it's God said, God said, God said, God said, God said. You can see all that, right? Um, in fact, in verse 26 is where you find the reason why God made us. If you ask the average Christian, why did God create you? The average Christian will say, well, to glorify God. Standard Christian answer. Pause with me. Let's back up and take that really slowly just a little bit here. Okay. So I'm going to get married and have four kids so that I glorify and worship you. How's that sound? Does that sound good to you? Sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? Very narcissistic. Verses 1, 26. Let us make humans in our image, in our likeness, so that, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals. He made us to work. The greatest way my children bring me honor is by doing what I ask them to do, by being responsible. As my children become responsible, I receive all kinds of glory and honor. But that's not why I created them. You see, God didn't need any of your glory. He just didn't need it. He was completely self-sufficient in who he is. The reason why he made you is because he loved you. And he wanted to create you so he could give you something to do and watch and have fun. And then as you grow up to be live mature lives, and you and you begin you find Christ and you begin to transform into his image and you begin to be generous and compassionate and affectionate, faithful and all that, he's the one that receives the glory. It's a byproduct. It's not the end goal. The end goal is we got something to do. We got work to do. 
you need Jerusalem, guess what? At the end of the story, we won't get there in this class, but at the end of the story in Revelation, the nations are coming and going, bringing their good, bringing out of the kingdom, showing Christ, look what we made. It's a fantastic picture. So in the New Jerusalem, we get to keep doing it. It's wonderful. Um, all right. I want to get to some of the other ones. Okay, Genesis chapter 3. This is an important thing. Uh, Genesis 2 and 3 are important in the whole question of gender roles because uh, depending on your background and your tradition, and I, I know your traditions are very varied and mixed, um, we go back to the Genesis, the creation account, to argue for the way we should construct gender roles. Okay? For example, I was raised that in the Genesis creation account, I know some of you were, there is hierarchy within the garden. The fact, for instance, that the man was allowed to name the woman and the woman is called a helper communicates some level of uh, subordination or submission in a hierarchy. I do not personally believe that. There are many in our church that do, and I understand it, but I, I personally do not believe it because the words themselves do not require that. We're reading that into it the way I look at it. For example, the word helper does not imply submission or subordination. If I own a business and I hire Mitch, so Mitch, you're my new employee, and I own a painting business, and I, okay, so I'm not just going to turn you loose and say, go paint that building. I'm going to go with you, right? Because it's your first day on the job. I'm going to go with you and what? Help you, okay? But that doesn't mean all of a sudden you become the boss. So the idea of helper means that you someone completes what is lacking in the other person. So I complete what is lacking in Mitch when it comes to the skill that I hired him for. I do complete you, Mitch. Yes, you got it. You see what that means, how that works like that? And so the moment the woman was named helper, she just became God's primary agent to complete what is lacking in the marriage. And it forms a partnership. So the command is given to both of them to rule over the fish and take care of them. It's given to both of them. They share equally in the workload. There's no division of labor all the way through that. Even when you get to the fall, okay, chapter 3 describes the process of what happened when they were deceived. And I understand that Paul in in 1 Timothy says, yes, the woman was deceived. I get that. But guess what? In Romans 5, he says the man is the one that sinned. Didn't say the woman. He says the man. So he blames both of them, just depending on how he's crafting the argument. They're both guilty. It's what happened. And, um, and the basic story is Adam, uh, it was one of pride. Because uh, Satan came to Eve in the form of a serpent and said, did God really say, you know, don't you know that the, when you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like God? And so the real problem wasn't eating the fruit. That wasn't it. The real problem was the pride that goes, well, I could be like God. I could be better than God. Let's take a bite. Okay? Eyes were opened. That's what happened. Her eyes were open. So this is what um, this is what God said to them. Let's see here. In uh, uh, verse 8 of chapter 3. The man and the wife, the man and his wife heard the God, sound of God, of the Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from God among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? All right. Again, I, I'm not sure why they translate it this way, because... Uh, these words in here carry a lot of turbulence and stress. When God showed up in the garden, it's probably a hurricane 
with what was happening, and they were terrified. He answered, the man answered, uh, God said, where are you? And the man said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Okay? This is what we call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Christ appearance. Anytime God appears as a human, it's always Christ. John 1.18. Every time. This is Christ walking in the garden. That's what it was. He shows up in the form of a human, probably in the midst of a hurricane, and uh, said, where are you? And he says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Those three clauses capture the entire story of sin. Those three clauses. I was afraid. We're the wrong emotion. Because I was naked. We have an incorrect awareness of who we are. So I hid. We have an incorrect strategy. We run. We run from God. Those three clauses capture the entire story of the failure of sin from Genesis. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from that tree that I told you not to eat from? I love Adam. The woman did it. Man, we've been trying it ever since, haven't we, Mitch? I'm telling you, I tell Nancy, I tell at least once a year, if you just only got your act together and, and, and were perfect, our marriage would be a lot better. So, so the Lord said to the woman, what is it you did? What did the woman say? The serpent did it. <laughs> I love it. I just love it. All right, so there you have the basic sur- curse coming out. Um, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly all, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, this offspring of the woman. So that's a fatal blow. He will crush your head uh, and you will strike his heel. So the wound that the serpent will cause is not life-threatening, but the wound that, the, that her offspring will cause is fatal. So this becomes what we call the proto-evangel, the, the earliest form of the gospel, the good news, that God will not forget us. So he says with the woman and the man and Satan standing there, this is what's going to happen, folks. Yeah, Satan, you can, you're going you're gonna to hurt people, but we're going to crush you with your integrity. That's what's going to happen. And now what, what do you think would happen when she heard that and then she gets pregnant right after that? What do you think her first thought is? It's a boy. And he said, your offspring, he's going to kill this monster. So the first boy's born. This is it. This is it. What a disappointment that the first boy kills the second boy. And then that starts that spiral, just like that. Now listen to what he says to the uh, woman. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And here's the key phrase that we focus on as far as gender relations. What does this mean? Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So there's there's lines of argument that have to do with this verse. One is, um, and, and quite honestly, either one could work. I'll tell you mine. But one is, 
very persuasive arguments, both of them, that you will develop a deep physical attraction, sexual attraction for your husband, um, that and your husband will exercise some kind of rule in that relationship. The other one, which I hold to, is that your desire will be for your husband. The only other time that phrase is used is in the next chapter when uh, God confronts Cain and he says, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. There the word desire really has the idea of control. And this is what I take it to mean, that you will want to control your husband because of the curse and he will want to rule or dominate you. I think what he did was the curse, not God, the curse introduced this tug of war between genders from now on. It's going to be a fight. And there's no easy way to get around it. And you've all tasted it in your marriages and in your relationships, haven't you? It's there. It's there. So when Paul comes along a long time later in Ephesians 5 and says, wives, submit to your husbands. Okay, first of all, he didn't say husbands make your wives submit. They do it voluntarily, which is new in in the world. And uh, when we get to the New Testament sometime, we'll talk about what happened. But what what does he say to the man? Love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave his life, right? And more than that, he lived his entire life for the best interest of the church. You can't think of a single thing Christ did in his own best interest. In other words, sacrifice yourself completely for this woman, 100% in every way possible. And then wives submit to that. Well, that makes it a lot easier to submit to somebody that's hurting you too, doesn't it? Which is what the idea of submission means. So, I think Ephesians 5 is the reversal of that right here. All right, well, I'm going to say on Genesis 3, we're going to close, unless you have more questions about it. Good. Okay, Genesis 4 through 11. Just going to fly through it. The first families in Genesis 4 spilled with strife. Cain kills Abel. Uh, Abel. Abel. Uh, culture is patriarchal from here on out. In other words, males dominate. Sin and evil begins to multiply. But it ends in chapter 4 with Seth. Okay? And Seth begins to give us hope. Because Seth is the one who, by which God begins to answer the redemptive question. Genesis 5, you have the history of genealogies there. Uh, genealogies are not there to show time. So the old, old argument that we can measure how old the earth was after 6,000 years by these genealogies, not true. Genealogies are not there for that purpose. They skip names. We now know that. They're naming significant people. A son may actually be a grandson or a great-grandson. The purpose is to show continuity, not chronology. Then you have chapters 6 through 8. You have the increase in evil and you have a flood. Chapter 9, God's covenant with Noah. Chapters 10 and 11 are uh, where you begin to see God creates all the nations. All right, so it's not until chapter 10 that he creates all the nations. He begins to form offspring. Chapters 10 and 11 go together to Tower of Babel. So the question is, why did God create all the nations? That's an anthropological question. Okay? Why did God create a, uh, um, a kaleidoscope of nations? The Bible doesn't directly address it, but we have a lot of information now uh, in modern-day times because of anthropology, which has studied every nation in the world. And here's what, what the current thinking is, theologically, on why God did it. It's because that's how we come to know him in a three-dimensional way. 
So for example, um, JB, you and I sit and talk, and I hear your story, and then you hear my story. Both of us learn something about God by talking about each other's story. But we're just stuck being a male, you know? And all of a sudden, we bring Sarah into the mix, and she's a female, and the whole world changes. You start hearing her story, she uses different concepts to explain God and the way God works. So your language is way different than my language in many ways. So as guys, we like to use guy language. Let's penetrate the culture. Let's, you know, the thing about the language that we use is masculine. When you have women talking about it, they don't use that same language. They use very different language. And so conceptually, they view God in a different way. So then I cross over to uh, Nepal, Kathmandu, Nepal, and I'm working with students over there. I've crossed every boundary you can think of, you know, gender, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic, religious, on and on and on. And I listen to them tell their stories. Their language is very different, and my view of God gets bigger and bigger. So with you, my view of God gets this big, and I bring her in, it gets this big. I go overseas, and it gets this big. So the more we listen to people different than us, the more we begin to see God in a very real and three-dimensional way. If I'm only limited to me, then we're in trouble. And if I'm only limited to males, we're in trouble. So God cannot be fully known until males and females alike all speak into this discussion and every notion is heard. I am so excited that commentaries are now starting to come out and theologies from people in different parts of the world. Uh, Miroslav Volf, one of my favorite theologians at Yale, is from Croatia, was there during the Civil War. You know, I have a commentary, uh, set of commentaries on my shelf from African scholars. I told the Nepalese, you guys need to write, read commentaries, you need to write them, you know, because it, you're going to open our eyes. For, m- for most of the last 200 years, commentaries have been uh, British and American. Uh, for a long time, they were from Germany, and they still are but largely uh, continent, continental commentaries. And guess what? We're all Westerners. We all think the same way. We ought to get, we need the Africans in there. We need African women writing. And so as we listen to people different than us, then our view of God becomes broader and more accurate. Does that make sense? Can I say it that way? So why did God, how would God communicate himself to you? How would he reveal himself to you as one person? It'd be impossible. Because you're limited, and he's infinite. So he created a kaleidoscope of notions that each of, us, each of us view God through the lens of our culture, our language, our experience, all of that stuff. Okay? I think that's why right from the very beginning. So when you get to eternal fate and revelation, every tribe, every nation, every people, every language is covered. So in the classroom, I like to ask my students, especially freshmen, what color are you going to be when you get to heaven? Now, they all want to say white, and they immediately become aware of the African-American sitting next to them. But they say, surely we're not going to be black. They don't say that. It's called prejudice, right? So they immediately become aware. And so the best they can do is, well, maybe we all get merged together. I don't know rainbow color or some kind of mush? No. You get to be the color you are right now. You get to be the language you speak right now. It's wonderful. We don't want people to become different. I love the Nepalese for who the Nepalese are. Their food is fabulous. Their architecture is very different than mine. I've told them many times when we get to the New Jerusalem, I'm going to come hang out in your section. It's pretty awesome. I'm going to love it. I love what the Germans eat. I do not like what the Japanese eat. 
I just was there. But maybe I will by the time I get to (laughs) the New Jerusalem. All right. Starting in Genesis 12, this is where the story of redemption really begins to occur. Because up until now, God is describing how, how far we have fallen from the ideal. Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. One of the things I gave you was a map of Abraham. Abraham had to travel a long ways when all he had was camels, <laughs> pretty much, okay? Across the desert. He had to travel a long way. Now, um, when you look at the outline that I gave you of Genesis, the reason why I organized it the way I did, you see the account of, the account of, the account of, the account of, okay? That's a standard linguistic marker in Genesis that helps us define it. So if you look, for example, um, in chapter 11, verse 27, this is the account of Terah's family line. So it's focused on Abraham, one of his descendants, but it's the account of Terah, okay, of which Abraham is a descendant, that whole section. So if you look at that the outline, you'll see that I've covered the first 11. Then you get to the patriarchal narratives. It's going to talk about Terah, specifically Abraham. Then it's going to talk about Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, uh, a second account of Esau, and then the account of Jacob. We're not going to look at all those, but we are going to talk about some significant features in there. Um, God's commands. Abraham was told to give up everything. Leave your country. That was a real sacrifice since home was everything. Leave your relatives. Unthinkable. They made you who you are. Unthinkable that God would say that. Leave your father's household. To leave was a break in cultural convention. When his father died, Abram would be in charge of everything, including the family's welfare. It was unthinkable. And where did God tell him to go? We have no clue. And furthermore, he probably wasn't a believer yet in this God. We don't know who this God was. It doesn't say this. So this is Jim Howard's uh, fanciful wandering through theology. I believe Abraham, because he was Chaldean, worshipped the stars. He's probably out worshiping the stars and looking at them, and one of the stars spoke. Abraham, whoa, can you imagine that? No lights, no nothing, no light pollution, no sound, no space, none of that. Just out there, and one of them spoke. And what did this star say? Go. Go. Leave your country, your people, your father's household to the land that I will show you. And then look at the blessing. Here it is. This is the gospel message according to Galatians 3. Right here. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All the peoples on, all the peoples on the earth, did you hear that? Will be blessed through you. God chose one to reach the rest. So Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. All right, so he's told to give up everything. He promises to make him a great nation, a distinct people group. He promises to bless him. He promises to make his name great. And he promises to make him a blessing to all the world. And he changes his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of many. 
whom you named the father of mine. That's incredible. Paul says in Galatians 3, God preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, that in him all the nations would be blessed. And right here we see the heart of God beginning to shine through. In the midst of this dark landscape of, of these chapters 1 through really 3 through 11, there's nothing very hopeful in the middle of all this. People, murders arising, all kinds of sin begins to surface. And you see the, you see the world traveling down this, this toilet, which we experience today. It's not a surprise to us. We see it today. And you think of all the, the shootings and all the things we have going on. And then out of that, this bright light begins to shine. And God chooses one person and says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. See what I mean about the story of Israel being unique? Nothing like it anywhere else. Nothing like it anywhere else. So he goes. He goes. All right. Let's move on over because I want you to see snapshots of this redemptive plan. Now, remember, every time we talk about redemption, we're also talking about um, Jesus. All these verbs we're going to see again in Jesus. Look in uh, Genesis 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. So it's very hot. He's sitting in the shade, probably under the tree. And he, he looks up, and he saw the three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of the tent. He jumped up. If you read it in some of the more literal translations, he looked up and immediately jumped up. So they caught him by surprise. So I asked in Africa, where it's blistering hot, I said, on the really hot days, what do the old people do? And the old people kind of snicker a little bit. And the young people said, they sit outside and doze. Exactly. So you can reread this. So he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day, probably snoozing, right? And he wakes up and sees these three people there. So he, he hurries from the entrance of the tent. He meets them, bows down to the ground. He says, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. Now you notice the word Lord there is small letters. My Lord, that means just sir. It's a term of respect. My Lord, sir. Uh, let a little water be brought. And you see cultural conventions at work. It's offensive not to show hospitality to people. True all the way through the ancient world. That's why when Mary showed up and there was no room, she had to sleep with the animals. That's a, that's a statement. That's a statement of, of shame. That's a statement of uh, mockery because uh, she was pregnant and not married yet. Okay? So it's a shaming statement. So here it is. So let a little, little water be brought, and then you may uh, wash your feet and rest under the tree, and we'll get you something to eat, et cetera, et cetera. They said, very well, Jesus. Said, so what does he do? He runs down to McDonald's and buys a hamburger. <laughs> no, he says to Sarah, quick, get three, three fails of the finest flour, knead it, and break some bread. Then he goes to the herd and selects a choice center calf, sacrifices it, and they prepare it. I suspect it took most of the day to cook all this stuff, making, baking bread and killing an animal and all that. And the three are just waiting. That's, they didn't have time to choose back then. Okay, that's what they did. So, verse 9. Where is your wife Sarah, they asked him. They're in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah's 90 years old. Okay? Abram's 100 years old. Now, we skipped over the part where he has Ishmael through his servant. He says, how about this one? God says, no, no, through Sarah. And pretty soon he's so old, she's barren now. It's not going to happen. She's too old to have children. 
So he said, I'm going to come back. You're going to have a son. Now, Sarah was listening, second half of verse 10, at the entrance to the tent, which is behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? So the Lord said to, to the Lord said to Abraham, is that laughable in here, brother? Why did Sarah laugh to herself and say, well, I really have a child now? Is anything too hard for the Lord? As I said, I'll return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So Sarah was afraid, and she lied. She goes, I didn't laugh. But he said, ah, but you did laugh. You did laugh. I love that story. By the way, uh, um, in the chapter before, just before this, Verse 17 of chapter 17, Abraham fell face down. No, no, that verse 16. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her, will surely give you a son by her. Verse 17, Abraham fell face down on the ground and he laughed. And he said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Right. Not going to happen. Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Right. Not going to happen. And Abraham said to God, just let Ishmael, I'm too old to have kids. Let Ishmael be the one. And God said, no, no, Sarah's not it. But after that, he appears here and Sarah laughs. So you got Abraham laughing at God and you got Sarah laughing at God. They don't believe him. All right, so then when you come on over and you get to uh, verse chapter 21. The Lord is gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised, Abraham gave him the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him. Verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. I love that. God has brought, he's laughing at me. God is laughing at me. And everyone who hears about this is going to laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham, that Sarah would nurse children when I have borne him a son in his old age. You know what Isaac means? Third masculine singular with a verb to laugh. He laughs. That's what it means. God got the laugh right. So Abraham laughed at him, Sarah laughed at him, so God with a chuckle gives her a son. And they name him, he laughed. He's laughing. Names are very important in Scripture. You capture something in here about the character of God. You learn about um, you learn about how they viewed God as he began to reveal himself. The true people of God, they're not afraid of God. They look at him and they see him chuckling. They see him laughing. And these people are they're they're sinners like everybody else. Okay, chapter twenty two is the sacrifice, the it's a well known story, Abraham's test to sacrifice his son. He says in verse 2, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Now you get to take your son, or he had several sons. Your only son, he's only seeing one, whom you love, Isaac. He's very precise. He wants to make sure that he gets it. And what does he say? Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain over Sarah. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants, his son Isaac, and he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham, we don't know how old he is right here, 
could be a baby. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, you stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Ooh, I guess he's not a baby, is he? He's a big enough boy to carry a bunch of wood on his back up a mountain. He's probably a teenager. So that would say, let's say he's 16. That would make Abraham 116. He himself carried the fire in the night. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, uh, Abraham, father. And he goes, yes, my son. And he goes, all right, I see the fire. I got it on my back. I mean, the wood, it's on my back. And I see the fire that we're burning. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there, arranged the wood on the fire, uh, wood on the altar. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. Just as he was getting ready to slay his son, the angel of the Lord called out to him, Abraham, Abraham, and said, Here I am. So I lay a hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. Abraham looked and there was a, a ram caught in a thicket. Okay, several details about this story, theologically, that are significant. First of all, uh, Isaac was old enough to, uh, to stop his father if he wanted to. He was old enough to close his process down, but he didn't, which gives you some indication that both his respect for his father and his willingness to trust. He willingly climbed up on the altar. This becomes one of the early pictures of what's going to happen between God and Jesus. So the language in the New Testament reflects back on this as a picture of what it means to sacrifice. Okay? Furthermore, the question that Isaac asked is uh, a question that has resounded through 2,000 years of history, and you find its culmination in John the Baptist. Okay? John the Baptist says, when Jesus comes walking, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So where's the Lamb? So where is it? And he says, God himself will provide the Lamb. 2,000 years later, John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb. Now here's what's amazing about it. He went to the region of Moriah. Okay, when we look at, uh, when we look in the historical books, we may get to this later on, but uh, King Solomon built a temple uh, in the city of David in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So God led him 2,000 years earlier to the same mountainous region and the same mountain, which he would later build his temple on where he would reside. And then John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, probably on the same mountain, perhaps the very same place. I don't know. I'd like to think so, but I don't know that. Too much coincidence there, folks. God is establishing a pattern for us to follow, the bread breadcrumbs, if you will, for us to make sense of it. Okay, the real test, now for us, we ask this ethical question, how in the world would God do that? How could he do that, right? Because in our world, you don't sacrifice children. I mean, that's like a violation of everything. But keep in mind, remember what I said, God speaks to us in language we understand, and then he fixes things that are broken in our culture, and in the next case, they, we no longer do those things. When this happened, it was not against the law to sacrifice children. I suspect probably what happened was Abraham said, when God said, kill your child, your son, he says, uh, hmm, all right, 
heir. All you friends and relatives, you sacrifice your children, they didn't come back. What would happen when I kill my wife? You watch what happens. The test wasn't in the de- in the execution because that was part of the culture. The test was his faith that God was going to <coughs> bless him through the son that he killed, which means he would have to raise Isaac from the dead. Hebrews 11 mentions this sacrifice and says, Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead, and so in effect he did. So the real test is not in killing his son. The real test is that God would raise him from the dead and fulfill the promise. And he says, you've proven to me you're faithful. So that's how he had his faith tested. Faith testing is part of the journey with this one true God because in the final analysis, I cannot give you enough facts to convince you of God. I just can't. I can argue philosophically. I can argue scientifically. I can argue many different ways. But in the final analysis, it's faith. That last step into the relationship with the Lord is one of faith. Because I can't prove a cotton-picking thing. Okay? See, tons of evidence. Tons of evidence. But I can't prove it. So as I watch people... Um, one of the questions I ask them is, tell me about your faith. When did it become real or when did it become alive? And with faith, that's that final step. And so testing of faith every step of the way is very important for people to come to decide what they really believe about this God. What they really believe. And every one of you has had your faith tested at least once, I'm sure. Probably more than more than once. Okay, let's see if there's anything else I want to say about Genesis. Um, okay, yeah, chapter 38. It's a very intriguing passage. I just want to say a couple things about it. Chapter 38 appears out of nowhere. Um, okay, in chapter 37, Joseph has been sold into slavery. Look in chapter the last verse of chapter 37. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph to Egypt in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So young boys die now, and they sold them into slavery. Look at chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's household, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Okay, so we end chapter 37. The caravan has taken him to Egypt. And then chapter 39, now he's sold into Potiphar's house. He's old enough now, he's a man, because Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. Then all of a sudden, but in chapter 38, out of nowhere... At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of uh, Abdullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her. Uh, they loved her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son named Ne'er. She gave birth to another son named Ne'onan. Um, so another son named him Shelah. And he got, a, he got a wife for her, for Er, his firstborn. His name was Tamar. He gets wife for all the boys. The boys grow up. I mean, they're by, the boys grow up and they get married. He finds them wives. All the boys die. So he promises Tamar, my youngest son, when he gets old enough, I'll give him to you as a, as a husband. And you'll be his wife. So she waits, which means she's older than him, right? She waits and she waits. And she waits and she waits. Verse 11, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. And uh, before he thought, he too may die because the two boys died um, before that. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, 
to the men who were sharing his food to understand Hiram, your brother, and what you were doing. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on the way to Timnah to see his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and sat down at the entrance to Enuram, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that so she, though although Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. Many years have gone by. We're in the third generation, basically, since, since uh, Joseph was sold into slavery. You got it? Two generations later, anyway. So when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing she was a daughter-in-law, he came over and said, okay, let me sleep with you. And she said, what will you give me? And he said, uh, a young goat from my flock. And she goes, uh-huh, right. And will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? You're just a traveler coming through. How do I know I can trust you? So he said, uh, so he, he said, well, what pledge should I give you? She said, give me your seal and your cord. So he gave her the seal and the cord to her, and she uh, had sex with him, and she got pregnant. She goes back home, took off the veil. Verse 20, Judah sent a young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but when he got there, he couldn't find him. So he asked the men, where's the prostitute on the road? And they said, what are you talking about? There's no prostitute here. I love this story. I just love it. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Beside the men who lived there said there was no prostitute there. So Judah said, let her keep what she has or we'll become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but she didn't find him. Three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Uh-oh. Because she's living under his authority in his house as a widow. Can't do these things. Judah says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Here's one of those examples of inequality in the Old Testament. He can sleep with a woman, but the woman can't sleep with a man. A woman's only allowed to sleep with one man. That's all. A man can sleep with anybody except another man, though. It gets fixed in the New Testament as well. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, if you recognize whose seal and cords and staff these are, and Judah recognized them and said, Oh, boy. That's my paraphrase, by the way. She is more righteous than I am since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not sleep with her again. So she gives birth to two children. I mean, to a, a, a son. Uh, yeah, two of them. And um, what's this doing is smack in the middle of the story of Joseph. First of all, it advances that there's time clock because Joseph is sold as a young man. And now we know it's at least two generations uh, later. So he's now probably older, 50, 60. I don't know where he is in the time frame, but he's now older because he's in Potiphar's house. But still, this story appears to have, what's the theological significance of this? Here it is. The Bible is the story of God's redemptive love for his creation, right? told you that, and I'll keep telling you that over and over again. But it's also the story of a cosmic battle between Satan and his gods. And there's going to be several places in Scripture where that story goes right up against the edge of the cliff, and if God does not intervene, goes out. We're going to see that story several times. We're going to see that. This is one of those places where the story goes right up against the edge of the cliff, because Judah failed to fulfill what is his obligation to do it. And Tamar was important. She's in the line of Christ. And so if Satan can keep her from getting pregnant, then he'll win because the Messiah will never be born. 
So from here on out, you see Tamar's name held up and flags flying everywhere. Okay? Uh, you don't see Judah talked about quite as much. He's kind of an idiot in the story. That's why he said, she's more righteous than I am. So this is one of those places God pauses the story for Abraham. He says, you need to know what happened here. This is the truth. And, and Moses goes, huh, wait till the Israelites hear about this. Right up against the edge of the cliff, God had to intervene. He did it through Tamar. So we're going to find that several times, that type of thing happening. All right. And... I think that's enough about Genesis. Enough, hopefully, to give you a taste of if you were an Israelite in the desert and you heard this story for the first time, you can't make this stuff up. You just can't. You can't make it up. So you can imagine Israelites listening to Moses come back down from the mountain and say, I got the most incredible story you have ever heard. And they're just sitting around pelleted, pelleted, and listening, saying, that's what happened. That's why Isaac is, is uh, Isaac is in, that's why they named him God Ross. That's why he's in our lineage. That's why Tamar is part of our lineage. Huh, who would have thought? Who would have known? They didn't know. So they came in, he comes back down with the story. Remember, he comes back down the story around 1450 B.C., but he's describing the events before this. Okay, Exodus. Again, you have, uh, you have a page with some information on the Exodus. Um, ex- Exodus can be broken down into several sections. You have is- Israel, that's a, the nation, in Egypt. You have the Exodus. Then you have the making of the covenant at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. This is when they're out now. Okay, those are the basic sections of Exodus. So let's say a few words about Exodus. Just the name alone communicates what? What does the name alone tell you about the book? Huh? Leaving? Yeah, it implies something quick. You got to get out of town, right? A daring escape, if you will. So, now they're about to hear their own immediate story. Because remember, they hadn't heard the law. They saw the, the flies and the plagues, but they didn't know what all happened behind the scenes. So Exodus begins to fill in the details for them of their own life, their own story. So where does it begin? These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt, Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, blah, 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 blah. Okay? And he talks about them. Okay. He starts with the idea of the family being together. This is important because it still reflects a faithful God. He has not left his family jealous. All right? So they're all together in Egypt. Seventy people went down. So Egypt provides this protective atmosphere for this young family or soon-to-be nation. The last part of Genesis that we didn't talk about was Jacob. I mean, uh, uh, Joseph rises to a very high level in the Egyptian hierarchy. And he's in charge of all the grain and the food distribution during his day's training. And so the people from his brothers who don't know he's alive, their, their father sends them down to get grain from Egypt. And so, you know, Joseph by now looks like an Egyptian. He's been raised in Egyptian, you know, family and culture. He's probably shaved, dressed like an Egyptian. He recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And so they come up and he says, you're spies. Well, what do you mean we're spies? We're just peasants. We just raised 
Jeeps in front of that used body. He came out to check out our Jeep interest. And so he puts him through a whole series of tests before he reveals to him that he's their, their brother. They were flabbergasted. Flabbergasted. End of the story, they go back, get their father, and they all move down so he can take care of them. Because now he's the number two man in Egypt, risen to a high level. And so he takes care of them. All right. 400 years pass. from here to here. So somewhere, you know, uh, Joseph dies around 1805, somewhere in there. So somewhere between 1805 and 1450, around 400 years. <coughs> pass, silence. Not a word during that time frame. <coughs> so now the nation has grown bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay? Exodus begins with the families together. This is a, this is a statement of God's faith. So because you can imagine Moses telling the story. So they sold him into slavery into Egypt. That's how he got there. That was 400, 500 years ago. And you're going, wow. Now look at God, how God has kept us all together. We're all here. He protected us. All right. So you have a family, you have a nation. I mean, you have a group of 70 people. And you want to grow it into a nation. Remember, he promised Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And you're going to bless the whole world. Well, what would you do with the 70 people? How would you protect them? I think God did the most amazing thing in the world. I wouldn't have thought of it. He moved them down to their only superpower in the world who hated Israelites because they stank, because they raised livestock. And the Egyptians said they're very unclean. So if you read the whole story, when he presents them to Exodus, uh, to the Pharaoh, they tell him, we raise livestock. And he says, well, I'll give you good land over in Goshen in the other part of the country. You guys go over there. So he moves them over to Goshen so they're not there in his presence, right? So he puts them right smack in the middle of the superpower of the world um, because they don't like their jobs and the way they smell. They didn't intermarry with them. They never lost their ethnic identity. They kept their group identity. They kept their own religion. They were influenced mightily by the Egyptian religion, but they kept it. They were right smack in the middle of a country that would protect them. All those other ancient nations are now gone, but not Israel. So they, because through intermarrying and things like that, they lost their, their, their identities and their nations came and morphed and all that. But Israel never did. It stayed intact because he put them in the middle of a superpower who wouldn't intermarry with them. They had the military to protect them and they had food supplies and supply and demand. They could take care of all of them, all the supply structures. So he just planted them there and then he just stepped back and just let them grow and start to reproduce and let them grow. He wasn't really ready to go to phase two of the redemptive plan until they were big enough to have world influence. You with me? So he took this little band of 70, put them smack in the middle of a big nation that wasn't going to intermarry. So this is the one spot where they're not going to intermarry. And I'll just sit back and let it happen. So he starts the story by saying, we're all together. God didn't forget us. The Egyptians had a loathing for the Semites because the Egyptians were clean-shaven, completely clean-shaven. And the Israelites were very hairy. They considered this dirty. The Egyptians didn't like people who tended sheep. So what they did was they wanted to keep the Israelites corralled until they put them in Goshen. And they began to experience incredible growth. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. 
The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then came a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. 400 years later, they didn't know where he was. So, in order to control this threat, the Egyptians began to enslave the Hebrews. That's how they controlled them. That's how you often control people. It may not be in the type of slavery that you think of back then, but that's how you control people, is you make them, you put them in a lesser position than you are. Employers do it all the time. <laughs> you know? So you think about the different ways around the world. So they made them slaves. They basically uh, didn't educate them. They, they weren't educated people. Uh, as time goes by, they're digging ditches. They're hauling rocks. They're making bricks. They're doing all that kind of stuff. So Exodus is going to deal with several theological issues. One is deliverance. God is going to rescue them. And we use the word saved. That's very popular in Christian language. Have you been saved? Really what that means is, has God rescued you from the brokenness and the, the, the world in which you live, that you're born into? Has God, we say, has God saved you? That means has he rescued you out of it? And people that come to Christ take one of two routes to get there. They wake up and they realize what Christ saved them from. So maybe they were in a drug-addicted habit. Maybe they were in an abusive relationship. Who knows what it is? And God rescues them out of that. The other route are those people who don't go through that. They're raising really good families throughout the Christian family. And they realize what God rescued them. He rescued them by helping them avoid something. Those are the two routes that people go through. That you either avoid that and you recognize that or you rescue out of that. But either way, God rescues you, what we call uh, saving. The second thing Exodus is going to deal with is covenant. This becomes the relationship between God and us. And the covenant is good in that God promises to care for us. But the downside is that it necessarily exposes our weaknesses. The fact that when God says, I'm going to rescue, that means you've got a problem or you wouldn't be rescuing. So the very act of God making a covenant to care for us presupposes that there's a great need. So it exposes that something within us that needs to be dealt with. And then the third thing it deals with is the presence of God. This reveals, the story reveals God's love and care for his people every step of the way. And it anticipates Jesus. And we're going to see this. All the verbs used throughout the story, we find them all repeated later on in Jesus. Okay, Exodus 1 and 2, you have the birth of Moses. It's a fabulous story. Um, because they were growing up, uh, Pharaoh got a little nervous, so we got too many of these uh, Israelites here. So chapter 1, verse 16, he says to the Egyptian uh, midwives, uh, when you are helping Hebrew women during childbirth, uh, if you see that it's a boy, kill him, probably by breaking his neck, probably how you did it. So she's telling the, mid he's telling the midwives, and these are probably the midwives that oversee all the midwives because these two midwives don't take care of the entire nation. So pass the word, if it's a Hebrew boy is born, break its neck, kill it. Okay, so uh, the midwives, however, feared God didn't do this. Uh, they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you kept the boys alive? And the midwives answered, <laughs> I love this. I, I'm sure Mo God worded it this way. Moses worded it this way because it's hysterical. You, you don't get it, Pharaoh. Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're so vigorous. They give birth before the midwives can get there. What does Pharaoh know? 
He's probably never seen a birth in his life. Knows nothing about it. He goes, oh, oh, really? <laughs> so God was kind to the midwives, and the people kept increasing and growing in number. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh thought about it and said, all right, I have a new order. Every Hebrew boy that's born, you must throw into the Nile. So if the baby, if you don't break its neck, if it manages to be born, after it's born, throw it in the Nile. Pharaoh goes, okay. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. We know she's not named. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But then she could hide him no longer. So she put him in a papyrus basket and coated it with tar and pitch, placed the child in it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. When Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile and bathed, and the sons were walking along the riverbank, she saw the basket, and she said, hey, what's in the basket? Well, it's because it's the baby. And she goes, ah, this is one of the Hebrew babies. How did she know it was a Hebrew baby? Huh? Circumcised. Yeah, he's missing something. His sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, should I go, and actually Moses' sister, just happened to be standing there, should I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? And she said, sure. And so she did. She got his mom. <laughs> That's a great story. The moment she took the baby in, he became state property. And he became protected. He's no longer a Hebrew baby. He's now an Egyptian baby. The story is just filled with all kinds of amazing stuff. How long is the Nile? What is the chances that they happen to put the baby right where the Pharaoh's daughter will end up? This is deliberate. This is one of the greatest acts of faith in all of the story. That the mother said, we got to protect this boy. So let's go put him where Pharaoh's daughter will find him. So they picked the spot. Now, why would Pharaoh's daughter come down with all of her attendants and bathe? She has a luxurious palace. She doesn't need a bath. Nile was one of the gods. This was, she, as the daughter of Pharaoh, represented one of the goddesses. And she was down doing her, her goddess thing, worshiping the, the Nile god. This story is just mixed so much. The Nile god, that's what she's doing, representing that. So Moses' mother knew right where she would be and placed the baby there. Furthermore, what we see in here is a basket is the same word. It's only used one other time in Scripture, the same word for ark. Describes Moses, uh, Noah's ark. Okay? So she takes the baby and she names him Moses, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, saying, I drew him out of the water. Okay, Moses is a pun. It's a... It's actually a triple entendre, but two of them are important in here. Okay, in the Hebrew word, uh, the, mean, the word, the Hebrew word means that uh, he has been drawn out. Okay, it's one of the very few words where where Hebrew and Egypt, Egyptian overlap. They have the same consonant. Okay, so the the Hebrew word means that he has been drawn out, like out of the water. And that um, the Egyptian word means that he's water. Okay? So you never see the word Moses in Egyptian literature by itself because it's a name of uh, God. It's one of their names for deity. 
So you see text Moses. So if you look in Egyptian literature, you see it as had. With the Jews, it's the same thing. Uh, you look at Yah, the name for Yahweh, the shortened form, Jeremiah, Yah. Okay? Ezekiel, the shortened, Elohim, the shortened form is El, Ezekiel. So the Egyptians, I mean, the Jews did the same thing for the, uh, the, Israel, uh, the Egyptians. So he's got this double entendre, which, which represents his, his involvement in both nations. So it's a pretty fascinating story. So he grows up, and um, uh, he's raised in the Egyptian household. And so, and if you go on your, uh, what that means, the fact that he was raised in the Egyptian household, that means he would have been raised in the royal court, and he spoke several languages. He would have spoken at least Egyptian, Akkadian, and Hebrew, all three. He would have been be able to speak all three. But it would have been, it means that he would have been raised in the finest tradition that they had available. He would have been trained in sciences, for example, history. He knew history, culture, law, martial arts, military strategy, literature, art, music, engineering, management. In other words, God was grooming him. He was grooming him to lead a nation. And not just any nation, a nation of slaves. They didn't have any of this stuff. It wasn't available to them. So, this is one of the, the great stories, the great storyline, is that God took this baby in the faith of the mother. He places it where, where Pharaoh's daughter is going to find him. She has, she sees it, has compassion, takes him into her family, which then gives him state protection. And he's raised as an Egyptian boy from that point on. But he never forgot his people. Somewhere along the way, I think his mom was pregnant. That's who you are. Okay. When you get to Exodus 2 and 3, you begin to see the story unfold. Exodus 2, um, Moses um, gets into a scuffle and he has to flee. He's exiled, kicked out. They move through the desert. Um, at 40 years old, he's told that he's going to lead the people out. But he gets kicked out of Egypt. And it's not until 40 years later, when he's 80, that uh, he becomes the leader. They eat him up. Well, there's a lesson in there somehow. <clears throat> then you have the whole burning bush thing. But what I want to get to is in Exodus 2, 23. Um, just a couple of verses. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. All right, you've got four verbs, four words that are used here that show, reveal God's character, okay? You have the fact that they groaned, and it says he heard. They cried out, and it says he remembered. Their cry was desperate, and he saw their plight. And they were slave, enslaved, and it says he understood. Those are the words that are used to describe this short little verse begins to lay out the yes of Christian theology all the way through the Bible. Because these form the basis for God's name. He heard, he remembered, he saw, and he understood. So in chapter 3, when Moses says, what is your name? You want me to go rescue these people? They took me out of Egypt. You want me to go back to Pharaoh? He's like, tell me. 
change his name. They went out of the country. Well, then he says, well, what's your name? They're going to ask me what the name They didn't know the name of their daughter. He hadn't given them the name yet. And he says, tell them I am has sent you. Because what does he do? Okay, so he says, well, there I am. I am what? He never answered his question. The rest of the Bible begins to fill in what God is. and But the very early part here is we learn something about his character. I am one who hears. I am one who remembers. I'm not going to forget you. I am one who sees what's going on in your life. And I am one who understands your plight. And we see these words start to appear over and over again in various places in the Bible. Okay? And actually, these were used to describe the life of Jesus later on. So he erupts into Moses' life through the burning bush, gives him his name. And um, then in chapter 6, we see more of this theology begin to get laid out. God, what God's doing here is he's teaching Moses and laying a foundation. Now remember, the Israelites are hearing this story for the first time. They didn't know all this. You would just picture them on the plains of Sinai in the valley listening as he's telling them the story. He gets to tell them the story of what happened in their own nation. So chapter 6, you have chapter 6, verse 2. God said to Moses, I am the Lord, all capitalized. I am Yahweh. And, um, <coughs> and then in uh, 6, 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That's the word we often hear as El Shaddai. You've heard it in songs and things like that. I am the powerful one. Probably comes from the Akkadian word Shadu, which means mountain. I am God like a mountain. Okay? I'm not a mountain isn't God, but I am God like a mountain. Now, we live in the mountains. That makes sense to us. You can stare at the mountains. Don't you get the sense of grandeur way beyond? Grandeur that's just magnificent beyond anything. And so he chose... He chose features along the way to illustrate his character. That's how stable, that's how prominent, that's how enduring we learn something about his character by that. Then he reveals his plan in chapter chapter 6, verse 4. I established my covenant with them, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the, now listen to this language, we just heard this, I have heard the groaning of my of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched hand, with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out. So the basis for his plan is his promise. I promised Abraham, and then I promised Isaac, and then I promised Jacob. And now I'm promising you. Same promise. So the whole basis is his promise. God is proving that he is faithful. And so what he says, he says, he's going to rescue them. That's redemption, deliverer. He said that they would be his people. They become a prized possession. Then he says they would have a relationship with him. He would be their God. So he's talking about creating a healthy community as well as a relationship with God. And then he says he's going to give them the gift of land. And look what he says about this land. I will give, uh, let's see here. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And later on, he describes as a land flowing with milk and honey. Milk refers to um, the fact that there's lots of room for herds flowing with milk. You have many sheep as you want. 
honey has to do with settled agriculture. And when they moved them to the land, guess what they found? Crops. The crops had all been planted by the people before the industrialization. All these words are applied to Christ later on. All of them. All these words. So when God says he hears, he understands, he sees, he remembers in these early ancient days. Now, don't forget the story. The Israelites are hearing this for the first time. So they're sitting at the base of Mount Sinai is where they are. I gave you the map to show you their wanderings. We'll talk more about that next week. But you can see when they came out, that's where they crossed, where the Egyptians, where God parted the waters. Here's Mount Sinai right here. He brings them all the way down here. So the Egyptians are now long behind them. And this is where they sit for a long period of time. And this is where they're hearing the story for the first time of their own history and their own past. And in telling the story, it becomes salvation history. God is interacting with them in the story uh, because they're part of the story. They're the people. They don't even know this. They have no clue what their real destiny is. They're the people God has chosen to reach the rest of the world. See what I mean? I say you can't make this stuff up. It just isn't possible to do that. And I'm spending more time on Genesis and Exodus than I am the rest of the books because Genesis and Exodus lays the theological foundation for which everything else begins to make sense. So why did God, why did God, uh, what was the basis for God's decision to lead them out of Exodus, out of slavery, into the Exodus? His promise. And what did he say? I remember my promise. I remember my covenant. I didn't forget. So what did Jesus say at communion? Do this, what? In remembrance of me. I remembered you. You remember me. I didn't forget you. Don't forget me. So after both elements of communion, as Jesus says here, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. What does Paul say when he tells the story, that same story? Every time we do it together, we proclaim his death until he comes. We're celebrating what he accomplished for us. And the Exodus, we just barely got into the Exodus, tells the story of a God who cares about his people, who remembers his promise, a God who hates oppression, who always moves to protect the underdog. He does. So that's important to him. It's part of his character. And that's where he wants the world to be, is a world where equality is restored, people are treated with dignity and respect, loving kindness, affection, where those who are blessed bless others, where those who are needy can, can readily find their needs met. He can go to people and get help. That's what he wants. So he always, he always goes after the underdog. He said, in fact, later on he gets into the prophets, to the, uh, to the uh, wealthy people of the elite, he says, I'm not even listening to your prayers. I'm not even paying attention to you. You might as well quit. Who am I listening to? I'm listening to the widows and the orphans over here and the poor people that you're ignoring. No, I'm listening to their cries and prayer. I'm not listening to yours. Wonderful language. So the Exodus is the beginning story of what God is about to do for all of the world. All of the world. Okay. See you next week.